Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. Did you hear about the shakeup in New Zealand politics, Abby? Oh, you mean the National Party aligning with ACT and New Zealand First to form a new government? Exactly. It's a significant shift to the right, promising lower taxes and less government bureaucracy. And it's interesting to see the mix of parties here. We've got the center-right National Party, the classically liberal AT, and populist New Zealand First. Quite the coalition. Indeed. And at the helm, we have Christopher Luxon, a former airline executive who's taking over as prime minister. And let's not forget Winston Peters from New Zealand First. He's stepping in as foreign minister and sharing the role of deputy prime minister with ACT's David Seymour. That's right. And they've got some ambitious plans, cutting personal income taxes, training more police, and rewriting the central bank's mandate to focus on inflation. It's a big shift from the previous center-left Labour Party government. And it comes after weeks of negotiations. The National Party won 48 of 123 seats in the parliament, compared to Labour's 34. ACT and New Zealand First picked up the rest. And it's important to note that this comes after Jacinda Ardern's surprise decision to step down earlier this year. Her popularity dipped due to frustrations with COVID-19 restrictions and rising living costs. It'll be interesting to see how this new coalition manages those challenges. Will this shift to the right provide the change New Zealanders are looking for? Only time will tell, Abby but it's clear that the political landscape in New Zealand is evolving. From the changing political landscape in New Zealand, we now turn our attention to another part of the globe where political currents are also shifting. Let's dive into some recent developments in the Middle East, where the political scene is as dynamic and unpredictable as ever. Stay with us as we unpack the latest poll results out of Israel. Well, Abby, it looks like there's some political turbulence over in Israel. A recent poll by Mariv suggests some interesting shifts in voter preference. Absolutely, Michael. It appears Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich's religious Zionist party wouldn't even make it into the Neset if elections were held today. Quite a shocker, isn't it? It is indeed, Abby. And what about the Otsma Yehudit party led by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir? They seem to be on an upward trajectory, Michael. The poll suggests they would secure seven seats. But the real surprise comes from Benny Gantz's National Unity Party. Oh, do tell, Abby. Well, they would rise to a whopping 43 seats, while Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid would drop to 13 seats. Moretz would secure five seats. Quite a mixed bag, don't you think? Certainly seems so. And where does this leave Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud? Likud would earn 18 seats. Shas would get nine seats, Yisrael Beitenu eight seats, United Torah Judaism seven seats, and both Hadash Ta'al and Ra'am would earn five seats each. But here's the kicker. Labor would fall below the electoral threshold. That's quite a shift. And who do the respondents think would make a better prime minister? Well, 52% believe Gantz would be better, while 27% prefer Netanyahu. Some 21% said they were unsure. But among Likud voters, 56% would prefer Netanyahu, while 26% believe Gantz would be better and 18% were unsure. Interesting. And what about the potential return of Yoaz Hendel and former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett to politics? If Hendel were to lead a party called the Liberal Right, it would earn seven seats. If Bennett were to head a similar party, he would earn 15 seats. 
If they ran together, they would earn 18 seats. The main votes for Bennett and Hendel would come from current voters of the National Unity Party, Yesh Atid, Likud, Habit Hayahudi, and the Religious Zionist Party. So the return of Hendel and Bennett could really shake things up. It's going to be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Staying in the region, but shifting our focus slightly, let's delve into the intricate web of Middle Eastern politics. As we continue to dissect the recent events, we turn our attention towards Iran's role in the current geopolitical landscape. From alleged puppet master roles to internal politics, there's a lot to unpack. So let's dive right in. Let's dive into the complex dynamics of the Middle East, Abbey. There's a lot of talk about Iran's role in the recent Hamas attacks on Israel. What's your take? Well, Michael, it's not as simple as some are making it out to be. While Iran has supported Hamas for decades, it doesn't mean they're pulling the strings. In fact, both Iran and Hezbollah were as surprised as anyone when the attacks happened. That's interesting, considering the narrative that Iran is always the puppet master. But it's crucial to remember that Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has flatly denied any involvement in planning or executing the attacks. And that's not all, Mikkel. Khamenei has also stated that Iran will not enter the war on behalf of Hamas. During his recent meeting with Ismail Haniyeh, the chairman of Hamas's political bureau, he reportedly criticized Hamas for attacking Israel. That's a significant point, Abby. Now let's talk about Iran's internal politics. We know there's a broad consensus on certain issues, like forcing the U.S. military to leave the Middle East and supporting the rights of the Palestinian people. But there's a lot of disagreement about how to implement these policies. Absolutely, Michael. The hardliners believe in forging alliances with nations opposed to the U.S. and arming the country and its proxies with advanced weapons. But moderates and pragmatists advocate for closer relations with Iran's neighbors and the Arab nations of the Persian Gulf, as well as with Europe, to reduce tensions. And it's not just about alliances, but also about how to support the Palestinian people. While hardliners equate support with arming them, Moderates and pragmatists believe that Iran should limit its assistance to diplomatic support and humanitarian aid. That's right, Michael. And when it comes to punishing Israel for its campaign of assassinations and sabotage in Iran, the hardliners favor arming Iran's proxies, while all other factions believe that diplomacy is the best approach. Now, let's talk about the current war between Hamas and Israel. All factions have condemned Israel's attacks on civilians in Gaza with the moderates also condemning the October 7th attacks on Israeli civilians. But the similarities end there. Indeed, Michael. Some hardliners initially declared that Iran should join the fighting. But this seems more like posturing than a real intent to go to war. Even Iran's foreign minister warned that Iran's proxies have their fingers on the trigger. But this was likely an attempt to elevate his status within the hardline camp. And it's not just the foreign minister. The IRGC's Quds Force commander, Brigadier General Esmail Khani, also made a similar declaration. But again, this is likely just bluster. Khamenei has already ruled out Iran entering the war. Exactly, Michael. Even within the IRGC, there are voices of reason that oppose Iran's entry into a war with the U.S. and Israel. Brigadier General Amir Ali Hajizadeh, commander of IRGC's Aerospace Force, recently said that Iran did not attack all the U.S. military bases in the Middle East after the assassination of General Soleimani because of the potential civilian casualties. 
And on the other side of the spectrum, moderates and pragmatists have called for restraint, fearing a wider war in the Middle East that could engulf Iran. As former Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif put it, supporting the Palestinian people does not imply that we should fight for them. That's a very important point, Michael. Former President Mohammad Khatami also spoke out in favor of restraint, stressing that Tehran should rely more on diplomatic initiatives based on Iran's national interests and avoid taking positions based on factional politics. So it seems like the most important political factions in Iran reject war with the U.S. or Israel and favor a policy of restraint in the current war. But the question remains, as long as Palestinians are denied their aspirations for an independent state, will Iran's hardliners and other non-state actors continue to exploit their plight? That's the million-dollar question, Michael. But one thing is clear. The most effective way to neutralize Iran's hawks and reduce regional instability and tension is for the international community to work seriously to help Palestinians realize their goal of an independent state. From the complex dynamics of the Middle East to the contentious debates in the world of sports, let's shift our focus now. The International Cricket Council, or ICC, has made a controversial decision that's shaking up the sporting world. It's a hot topic that's stirring up conversations about fairness, inclusion, and the very nature of competitive sports. Let's dive into it. So Abby, we've got a bit of a hot topic today. The International Cricket Council, or ICC, has followed suit with other major sports bodies in banning transgender women from competing in women's competitions. Thoughts? Well, Michael, it's a complex issue. The ICC didn't provide much detail or scientific basis for their decision, which has left many scratching their heads. The statement was quite broad, stating that any male-to-female participants who have been through any form of male puberty will not be eligible to participate in the international women's game, regardless of any surgery or gender reassignment treatment. That certainly is quite broad. And it's interesting to note that there has only ever been one transgender woman to have competed at the international level of women's cricket, Danielle McGay, who represented Canada against Brazil in a T20 World Cup qualifier earlier this year. So it begs the question, why this decision and why now? That's a great point, Michael. It seems the issue of transgender women in women's sports has been a hot topic in recent years, not just in cricket, but across many sports. Some argue that it's all part of the political culture wars happening in places like the U.S. and U.K., where anti-trans sentiment is being leveraged for political gain. And sports has become a key battleground for these debates. Right. And the main argument being used to exclude trans women from women's sports is usually fairness. But the science is still patchy and disputed. And let's not forget that fairness in sports is a bit of a false concept anyway. Some people are naturally taller, others are naturally faster. The single greatest predictor of sporting success is often the amount of money one has to train and compete. And Michael, we've seen what happens when you rush to exclude trans women from sport. World Aquatics created a third transgender category. But when they launched it at the Berlin World Cup this October, not a single person entered. It's a clear message that when we tell people they're not welcome, they'll step away from the sport. That's a sobering observation, Abby. It's a complex issue, and one that requires careful thought and consideration. And as we continue to navigate these waters, it's important to remember the human element. 
These are people who love their sport and just want to compete. Absolutely, Michael. And it's crucial that we continue these conversations to ensure that everyone has a fair and equal opportunity to participate in the sports they love.